Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 42 of Weekly Weights. We are joined with by Jamie Smith. Fuck, I did it again. It's made the same. We, this is our second attempt at recording I'll, this I'll interruption. Move, move. No, we're not redoing it. No, it's authentic. Um, I'm Will Berkman. No. We're joined by Alex Hayes and we're also joined by Jamie Smith. We're not joined with Jamie Smith. Unfortunately, so, he's joining us remotely. He's in Melbourne. And we've all got our shirts off. So. Yeah, it's a shirts off podcast today. I've Jamie, got my pants off as well. <laughs> I, I'm completely naked and full stag right now, but it's all under the desk. the computer down so we can see, bro? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, done. <laughs> okay, so Jamie of Melbourne Strength Culture, um, his background is in strength and conditioning. He's done an intern. He's doing a double buy for us right now. Um, he's done an internship with Eric Cressy. Is that correct? And, that is correct. And currently mentored by Christian Woodford. Also correct? Uh, mentoring with Woodford was a few years back, but he's, he's, he's in my close circle for sure. Yeah. Okay. Aren't you coaching him now? Uh, we coaching very loosely. He, he comes in and trains three days a week. We talk a lot of shit, we bounce ideas around and, um, it's just like good mates training. I've, I've, Christian was probably my, probably my very first person that showed me the light of what actually, what you can actually do as a coach and influence people. Um, I went, I went to his, he opened his first facility, I'm going to say five years ago and I was personal training at the time and I thought, I thought there could be better and, and, and more out there what, what, than what was going on around me in my direct circles. Uh, and Christian opened up and I started reading his stuff. I started seeing sort of the, the, the vibe that people were putting on him and how, how it was sort of building. And I thought I just had to get around that. So I, Christian was the first guy that really showed me what a coach can do. Um, so since then, me and him, him and I have been real close and I owe a lot of what, where I am now to him. For sure. And I also met my first coach, John Paul Kauke, through his facility. So I guess I've got a lot to thank, thank about that as well. Cool, man. So um, if you haven't already listened to the episode 33 that we did with Jamie, we spoke about assessing the movement of powerlifters and basically a lot of the things that they do down at the strength culture with their lifters. So that got a really good response. So we wanted to bring him back on again. So today we're going to talk more specifically about the shoulder. So people speak of the shoulder as one joint, but in reality... All movements of the shoulder and arms require coordinated movements of a number of joints. So let's start off with what makes up the shoulder complex. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I got to stop. I, I can't say yeah, definitely. It must be like a, a nervous thing for me. I don't know why, but every time I'm on here, I just say yeah, definitely. But I, that would be the last time I say it. Damn uh, it. Would uh, yeah? We'll see what happens. <laughs> so the shoulder, the shoulder is definitely the. I call it the upper extremity. <laughs> not definitely. Shoulder. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not just the shoulder. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of interacting bones and muscles and tissues of the upper extremity. When we talk about the shoulder itself and the four joints that most people uh, correlate to being the shoulder complex, the, most, the, the main one would be the glenohumeral joint, which is the typical ball and socket joint uh, that everyone thinks about. That's your actual shoulder underneath your delt there. You've also got the AC joint, which is where your collarbone joins onto the shoulder blade. It's normally the little pointy bit right at the end of your shoulder on top. Uh, you've got the scapulothoracic joint, which is where the shoulder blade attaches to the rib cage. Uh, and then you've got your uh, chromioclavicular joint. Ah, oh, no, sorry, that's your AC joint. Your, um, I've gone blank. Your, the Corico clavicular? Sternoclavicular. <laughs> 
Sternoclavicular. Holy shit. I just threw an absolute blank. Sternoclavicular joint, which is where your collarbone joins to your sternum. So they're the four main joints that um, everybody talks about when you talk about the shoulder complex as, as a whole. I think a lot of people, though, they, they disregard what the actual rib cage is doing underneath all of that itself. So if you think about the rib cage, it's sort of the foundation that supports that entire structure. The sternum attaches to the, uh, to the rib cage. The collarbone obviously attaches to the shoulder blade, which sits atop the rib cage. So when we're thinking about the shoulder complex, it's really, really important to actually think about the rib cage itself because the rib cage should be a mobile piece of machinery that's moving when we breathe, when we walk, when we do any movements. Uh, that is something to take into consideration as well. So they're the four main joints and they all sort of interrelate to each other. Um, and sorry, underlying all of that, I'm sure we'll get into this more. The ribs all originate from the thoracic spinal segments. Um, yep. So spinal movement as well is a really important part of full shoulder movement. Definitely. You can, you can follow it all the way back. So this, uh, the costovertebral joints, which is where the, the ribs attach to the actual vertebra, uh, they're very important. Uh, you've also got the actual ver vertebra themselves moving on each other. So the actual spinal segments. For sure. And then you can even bring in the cervical spine and how that affects what's going on at the head and how the head affects some of those attachments of like your levator scap or upper traps, uh, a lot of the anterior muscular of the neck as well. Like the upper extremity is this incredibly fluid, it should be, uh, uh, let me rephrase that, the upper extremity should be this incredibly fluid moving piece of uh, machinery. But Unfortunately, particularly for people that like to lift heavy weights and a lot of the powerlifting community, we get stuck in these postures that just limit movement and mobility up top. And it just brings around about the same, literally the same common issues that everybody faces in the powerlifting community. And, and that's sort of what we're trying to push and, and how we can actually counteract what's going on with that in the upper extremity as a whole. Cool. So I think that actually segues very well into what we want to talk about because we have, this, sure. we have this sort of complicated complex of joints um, underpinning normal movements or normal human action. But then the power lifts and particularly the bench press are relatively simple movements. Um, what sort of compensations and adaptations occur at the shoulder complex in response to movement demands in general, but also in response to powerlifting stresses? Yeah, definitely. Well, let's take a, um, let's take what I, I always like to attack. Did I say it again? Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I, all right, that's the last time. I'm gonna be, I've been meditating lately. I've been trying to become a better human. I feel like there's aspects in my life where I can become a better human. And one of them is just focus. So I'm going to really focus on what I'm saying at the start of my sentences. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Right. Let me rephrase that. An approach that I like to take when talking about any of the upper extremity, I think for most human movement, is a proximal to distal approach. Uh, and that pretty much just means that the the muscles, the bones, the joints, uh, the organism as a whole from the center moving out. Um, so we think about the spinal cord being the center or the most proximal, most proximal physical thing of the human body. We can actually go a step further and maybe we'll get into it depending on where the conversation flows from. But the actual central nervous system and some of those like uh, some of those systems like the endocrine system as well can actually influence what's going on with our movement patterns as well. But from a physical standpoint of our bones and muscles, let's talk about proximal first. So with bench press in particular, we know that we want to extend our upper back as much as possible. Uh, and when we think of how the vertebra Sorry, of the thoracic spine, yep. Um, just to interrupt you again, 
So Jamie has a degree in anatomy. Was that correct? Or human movement? No, nah, it's just sports science, but I just, I love anatomy. I um, love it. <laughs> so when you say anatomical terms, can you also give the layman's yep. explanation? So extending the upper back means to sort of arch it or to... Arch, arch your back. Do the opposite of what uh, a hunchback would be. Yeah. So sorry, when you, do, when you do anatomical terms, I'll wave at you, but please do the layman's explanation too. Yeah, 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 for sure. Just one... One would be enough there. I won't do that again. My apologies, Mr. Will, sir. Uh, the upper back, the, the upper back. Yeah, we need, to, we need to arch our upper back as best as we can. And we all know the reasons why we want to do that. We want to shorten the range of motion. Uh, it allows us to put our pecs in a little bit more advantageous position. It takes a little bit of stress off the shoulders, which means we can handle more volume. All the good stuff happens when we arch our back in, uh, in the bench press. Unfortunately, though, our spine in the upper back, that thoracic spine that you were talking about where the rib cage attaches to, in a resting posture and in most human movement, it is in a flexed position. So it's in the opposite position. It doesn't want to extend as aggressively as we are extending it on the bench press. So we're sort of jamming the vertebra, so the jamming the, the spinal segments into an extreme amount of extension. And when we think about bench press especially, bench press is typically the, the movement that we can handle the most volume of. And, and I don't know about what you boys are doing with your own training, but some of your clients' training, especially us in strength culture, we push a high-frequency bench press three, four days a week with a lot of our lifters, particularly if their technique is, under, is, is good and sound, they can handle a lot more volume there. And we just can't get all the volume on one or two days, so we need to spread it out across the week. So we're getting a lot of exposure to that heavily extended upper back position, that heavily arched upper back position, which unfortunately is not how the thoracic spine, that, that spinal, those spinal segments is designed to sit uh, in resting posture. So we can get what, what I like to call an extended T-spine, where, yeah, it's not exactly flat or anything, but when you look at it from the side and you can actually palpate what's going on, uh, it's definitely more straight than a normal T-spine. Is that something that you guys have come across? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, actually, I'm curious to ask you this. Yeah, I've, I've come across people who are very rigid and can't get into flexion. Um, yep. But very often, people who can't get into flexion also seem to lack more extension than their resting posture. And so I'm wondering if, that's, if I'm observing the same thing as you. Yeah. I, all right, so let's take a step outside of from the proximal and let's go to the shoulder blade and let's talk about how the shoulder blade and the, and the spine through the rib cage would communicate to each other because I reckon this is probably what you're seeing and I like the fact that you're coming to our upper extremity seminar because you'll learn all of this in detail. But good so when plug. we look at the shoulder... Was that, sorry? That's a like, good hey. plug, yeah. Yeah, there'll be plugs <laughs> all through. out there? Uh, there, there are a few. We've, uh, most of them have actually been double passes, which has been really good. I'm, I'm glad that most people are coming to both. Uh, we're nearly at what we wanted to hit. So considering we're still about five or six weeks out, we're very, very happy with how the sales are going right now. Uh, if you are in Sydney, get ready for some sponsored posts because uh, Melbourne Strength Culture is going to come knocking on your Instagram doors. Uh, <laughs> targeted posts. But uh, let's take a step outside of the the spine itself and let's go to the the shoulder blade so the shoulder blade is a it's a flat bone it's called the scapula it's a flat bone which pretty much just means it's um it's it's a smooth piece of bone that is uh not shaped like anything else on the body really maybe some of the pelvis but for the most part all the other bones that we generally think of are a long bones like the arm bone or the leg bone the, the shoulder blade is its own little beast it's like a flat piece of um cardboard almost like if that you can think about shape like a palm uh, it's slightly curved, 
which is the reason being is that it's meant to articulate, it's meant to move around a slightly flexed uh, rib cage. That's how it's meant to, to move. So nature has created us in that, in that sense. And, and what tends to happen if you have a thoracic spine that is extended, as we just discussed, the shoulder blade actually sticks off the rib cage a little bit and it creates a little bit of space underneath the rib cage and and it can actually make you make you look like you have a flexed upper back so you have that rounded posture where you struggle to get into extension but really it's it's, it's the complete opposite it means that the shoulder blade is sitting away from the rib cage which then gives you that hunched position but underneath all of that the thoracic spine is not actually supporting the rib cage and it, it, it looks flexed but really it's extended if that makes sense does that so what you're saying is the, I'm going to say this back to you, Paulie, and you can yep. tell me I'm correct. So That's the right. shoulder blade, the shoulder blade isn't sitting against the the rib cage or the spine correctly. It's sitting away a little bit. That yep. space is giving the illusion of a slightly curved upper back, but really underneath it, the spine is extended, and it's that yep. there articulating poorly that is also limiting your movement in either direction. Yeah, hundred percent. And generally, what happens when you're in that position, you get that sort of hunched over the top feeling, that anterior tilt where the mm. shoulders rock forward. That is typically the presentation that we get. And then that's where people think, oh, I've got a rounded posture. I'm kyphotic, meaning I have an excessive rounded uh, upper back. When really it's just the shoulder blade position making a bit of an illusion on uh, on what's going on underneath in the, in in regards to the rib cage and the spine. Yeah, so that's what I'm going to say is probably what you're experiencing with your those guys who you feel like, oh, they look like they can't get any extension in their system. Maybe underneath, they're at full extension and the shoulder blades are actually disguising that inflection, yeah. Well, that immediately makes sense because they tend to have limitations in protraction, so wrapping the shoulder blades around the body and coming yep. forwards. But they also seem to be poor at getting sort of posterior tilt of the scapula. So tipping the bottom end down and opening yep. the front of the shoulder up. And so when they do yep. rows, they're the people who dump forward at the shoulder and, you know, the humerus slides forward in the joint. So to somebody who's envis envisaging this and not seeing me move right now, that would be somebody where their elbow wants to go way past the plane of their body and their upper arm seems to just keep moving forward at the shoulder itself and sort of dump forward instead of staying packed back nicely. Those are all yeah, the same things I see in those people. So these are all the typical, this is what we'll get into as this episode unfolds. These are the typical presentations that powerlifters find themselves in. And it's not just powerlifters, it's any real heavily extension-driven sports. Um, so anything where we're really driving that open posture of opening up the chest and anything like that, over time... And powerlifting more than anything because we've got such heavy loads that we're battling. So the, uh, the amount of strength that's within our system is actually quite uh, above the norm. Uh, but the, that, those presentations that you're talking about, that typical like rounding forward of the shoulder blade as a compensation movement, that anterior tilt, the dumping of the shoulders forward, it all falls under the same bat. The majority of the time, we do not have the support necessary underneath the shoulder or the shoulder blade uh, to support the movement that you're trying to create with the shoulder blade. We need to set the foundations. If you think about it like a tarp sitting on some, on a, on a, or, or attached to the ground, like a tent attached to the ground, the ground is not there for it. So the tarp is just floating around in this free space because the ground underneath it, the rib cage and the spine are not supporting that structure that should be floating and, and articulating with the surface well. It's just not there to support it. Okay, so I want to bring us back to 
where we sort of started that tangent, which is you were talking proximal to distal. And the first thing you were saying was that powerlifters tend to be driven into this very extended thoracic spine. And then we've sort of gone, we've gone and spoken a few of the consequences for that in terms of the shoulder blades movement and the inability to extend further. Um, I guess that was, yeah, those were the main things we were getting and then that dumping forward. What other presentations do we typically see or how do we extend further from that proximal starting position of the extended spine? Yep. Cool. So we've just taken the next step out, which is the scapulothoracic joint. So that is the shoulder blade articulating with the rib cage, that joint. So let's go, let's just stay there for one second as well, um, because there's also another thing that is quite common, and that is um, when the shoulder blades sit down and in depression, so they actually pull down further down the back, and that is a, a result of the bench press volume, but also your squat volume. You've got a heavy barbell on your back, and you're cueing yourself to tighten up your lats and really pull down on that bar. And I saw Alex did a video on this during the week about bar position in the low bar and all that sort of stuff. That position by nature is pulling your shoulder blades down your back. So we, we can also find this posture where the shoulder blades are sitting far below in a resting posture uh, than what they probably should be designed to do or where they should be sitting. Uh, what can that do for a lot of the upper extremity? So I know we're going to talk about it, but thoracic outlet syndrome is a, is a very common place for powerlifters where you feel tingling down your arms or numbness down your arms, particularly after a low bar squat, but it can also present in the bench press because we're cueing so much depression. We're pulling the shoulder blades so far down the rib cage that we're literally closing and entrapping space under the collarbone where a lot of the brachial plexus, a lot of the nerves that innovate the upper, upper extremity, they run through that area. So if you just crush down on those uh, those nerves and that vascular system, the sub, subclavian artery, uh, we can get a lot of presentations through the arms and, and the, uh, the upper extremity as a whole. So that's probably another thing that we need to look out for, uh, that we're trying to incorporate something in your training that allows you to get your shoulder blades back up, elevate the shoulder blades and, and reaching patterns and all that sort of stuff, which we touched on last, last time I was on, but we'll definitely get into it a little bit further. That's probably the next uh, biggest thing that we see with our powerlifters. Uh, taking it a step away from that again is when we get into the actual shoulder joint itself. And the typical things that happen at the shoulder blade, uh, shoulder joint, the glenohumeral joint, is anything on the front side. We have a lot of structures that wrap around the front, of the, the front side of the shoulder. As a whole, the shoulder is a little bit more mobile than most other joints in the body. We have a lot of range of motion. And that is by design of the actual glenohumeral joint itself, the actual shoulder joint. People, des uh, people describe it as a ball in socket. So we have um, like, a, like a cup and then the ball sits on it. The ball is the, the arm bone and the cup is the shoulder blade. However, when you actually look and, and, and look at some of the anatomical pictures or, or even just like dissections of the shoulder blade, the cup is very, very small, which means that the ball has a lot of movement available to it moving on the socket so i don't like to describe it so much as a ball being in the socket but it's more so the ball is on the socket and you think about it like a golf ball sitting on a golf tee it doesn't take much for you to move that ball off the golf tee as opposed to maybe a baseball sitting in a mug the baseball it's very stuck in there and it's very hard to perturb away from that so when we think about the glenohumeral joint we have a lot of mobility for a reason and unfortunately, what that means is when we're trying to pin the shoulder blades back in the bench and trying to extend and, and arch our back 
and squeeze our shoulder blades in together, which is what we want for a bench press. But it means that all the other movement, because we've stabilized so much back there, everything happens at the shoulder joint. And as a result, we can get a lot of, uh, I don't like the term, but unnatural movement occurring where we're trying to move the shoulder blade in one direction and then move the arm in the complete opposite direction. And it's not quite how the upper extremity is designed to move. Uh, so as, the, as a result of that, we can get a lot of side pain. Um, we can go into why that might be, but um, that's probably the next biggest presentation when we talk about it, uh, the bench press and, and what's going on with the shoulder blade, yeah, or the shoulder as a whole. Okay. So you did start talking about unnatural movement, that term that you didn't like. Um, yeah. What is it that makes the bench? We did talk about this a little bit last episode, but what actually makes the bench press different from other upper body pushing things that we do, like throwing or punching or even pressing overhead? Cool. Uh, the. That <laughs> you was tried so hard. That was me try. attempting not to say, yeah, definitely, but cool. <laughs> Cool. Uh, the so the shoulder the shoulder blade uh, the way we teach it at strength culture is the shoulder blade is designed to deliver the arm so wherever you go to put the arm and you can just move your arm in free space right now wherever you try to send your arm the shoulder blade will follow it should follow especially if you're going for longer movement patterns so if you're trying to reach forward to, to grab like a piece of water off a piece of water a glass of water off the uh off the table or something, or if you're sitting in the car, like reaching your arm forward to try and turn the knob, the shoulder blade delivers the arm bone. So they should always work in unison. And the reason that they should work in unison, let's go back to that golf ball sitting on the golf tee. If you've got the golf tee stuck and then the golf ball is moving around on that golf tee, so the arm is moving in a direction that the shoulder blade is not supporting, we can actually start to move the ball off the tee. And when we talk about most uh, shoulder issues, that is the issue, that the ball isn't staying on the tee in your movement pattern. Uh, and then we get what we call arthrokinematics or, or improper arthrokinematics, which is the, the, the smaller movements of the ball moving relative to the tee start to create issues. Um, we can start to press on some of the passive structures. We can start to fray the labrum. We can start to uh, impinge on some of the things inside the shoulder there. But pretty much most of that occurs because the ball doesn't stay on the tee in your movement. So that is what happens when we bench press, unfortunately. We are training that to happen. We are training the shoulder blade to stay back whilst the arm moves forward. And that goes against everything that should happen in human nature and human movement. When you're reaching to climb a tree, when you're reaching to pick something up off the ground, the shoulder blade moves with the arm to keep the ball on the tee. So that's the biggest thing. So uh, I can't remember what your question was. What was your question there? Um, how why does, is the bench? The, how does the bench differ? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're there. So we're there. so so that is why the bench press because you're you're training yourself to move your scapula in the direct opposite way that your arm is moving. And there's nothing in life, and I don't like the term unnatural because everything that we are doing is natural. We are humans moving in, in the world. Anything that we create is natural. We are, what, what is around us is natural and our movement is natural, but we're creating a, a disconnection between the shoulder blade and the arm bone, which 
isn't great in longevity unless you can do enough training to support the correct movement pattern as well, which is that, that articulation together. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, I think we should sort of we'll ask one more question because I think this will be a bit of a discussion itself and then we'll have a quick break. That question is, what are the foundations then of a strong bench press? So you've spoken about all these shoulder joint or all these sort of shoulder muscles and joints and things that we have to do. When we distill it down to benching a lot, what do we need to see? We need to see the chest as high as possible with the shoulder blades as stable as possible. I think that would probably be the two things that uh, sum up for the most part of bench press. We can get into technique and touch points and keeping the elbow under the bar and all that sort of stuff. But to us and how we teach it at Strength Culture, that is all secondary to setting the most stable chest, rib cage, scapulothoracic, all of those joints I just talked about. They need to be as stuck together and cemented as possible. So shoulder blades together and down chest as high up as possible and don't ever let that move like if that starts to move around whilst you're holding a heavy bench uh, barbell squash between a stable bench and you've got a heavy barbell in your arms if those shoulder blades are not in a a nice congruent position speaking to each other well we're going to get issues and that's the biggest thing that would be yeah i I know that will you battle with this but most this is this is probably the, the thing that people battle with the most when they talk about bench press is I can't keep my shoulder blades set. I can't keep them stable. And that is because it's an, again, I don't like the term, but it's an unnatural movement that you're trying to create. This is the longest thing that most people struggle with when it comes to starting powerlifting. Squat technique and deadlift technique can oft, oftentimes just come to people and they feel fantastic. And yeah, maybe sumo or conventional feels better. Or yeah, maybe it takes them a little bit of time to develop the mobility that they need to hold those positions. But setting your shoulder blades on the bench press is by far the toughest thing technique-wise when it comes to powerlifting. And I think every single coach can, um, can, can confirm that with how they go teaching their clients what's going on with that. So that's probably the biggest thing. Setting the most stable p- position possible for shoulder blades and rib cage. So chest high shoulder blades back and down. Yeah, I'm happy you said that because when, when we boil it down to the bench, if the shoulders are stable and the rib cage is high, all you have to do is just bend your arms and straighten them. And like, that's, that's, the, way, that's the way I teach bench. And it's good that, to have that confirmation from you. Yeah, definitely. That, that's the biggest thing. And people like joke, oh, I'm doing some elbow bends today. But man, if, if you can get to a point where your technique is literally just your elbow bending, you are going, and, and the range of motion is short, you are, I'm looking at Potsy right now. Potsy's doing this really, really well. Potsy's bench technique is flying at the moment. Uh, and, and a part of that is he's, I think he's learned how to set that position and hold it during sets, under load. It doesn't matter what the load is, whether it's warm-up set, uh, heavy loads, sets of eight, sets of 10, tempo, long count pause, whatever it is, he's, he's starting to get that. And, and it looks like, it almost looks like a joke. Like, what the hell are you actually doing? It's just an elbow popping in and out. I'm thinking about our best bencher, Andy Carlisle, who went to Worlds last year. She benches 90 at 52. Uh, she, yeah, yeah, she's exactly the same. It's, it's the chest is high, the shoulder blades are set, and it's just this little popping movement, pop, 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 and it's like, what, what is going on here? And you can just throw volume on them. You just mm. slam them with sets because they can just handle it because mm. everything else is so stable, so supported. So that's the biggest thing. If you're, if you're struggling with your bench press, that's where you need to be. Uh, spending your time setting a better shoulder blade and rib cage position. Cool. 
We're good. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Welcome back to Weekly Weights. We are here with Jamie Smith. So we're going to go further in depth into the bench press. So most people consider the pecs, the delts, and the triceps to be the main muscles involved in performing the bench. How can we position ourselves to, to the, take the greatest advantage out of these uh, prime movers? Yeah, so they, they, they are 100% the, the prime movers when we talk about pressing in the bench press. The pecs are... Probably your biggest things, but you can also get uh, some very tricep dominant bench presses or, or delt dominant bench presses for sure. And I think when we talk about techniques, uh, and again, this is something that how we sort of wrap all of our technical teachings up in, there's a few big rocks that if you set these guys in place, uh, for the most part, your technique from there shouldn't really alter too much. So the big rocks for us is what we, one we've already talked about, which is your upper, your your stability in your upper back and your rib cage, and getting your chest high as big as possible. Uh, that is probably the the biggest rock when it comes to bench press. Locking that in with leg drive is probably uh, your second biggest rock, and then the third one is your alignment. So your alignment with the barbell and all of the joints of the upper body. The the biggest players when we talk about that uh, would be the wrist alignment with the bar the elbow alignment with the wrist and then the shoulder alignment with the elbow itself. So let's not talk about uh, the downstream stuff of setting a, a nice, strong, stable scapula and rib cage position or the leg drive. And let's just talk about the alignment of those sort of positions. So it's pretty well understood that when you bring your grip closer, uh, you're going to move into a little bit more of a tricep delt dominant position. And when we think about the alignment of what's going on with those joints, it, it, it makes complete sense that when you bring your hands in closer, the bar has to travel further down your chest or down towards your stomach to get to a touch point. As a result, the elbow has to be closer to your body, which then means you're going to get more of a moment arm on tricep and delt rather than pec. So then you're going to stress delt and tricep more than your pec itself. And if you were to widen your grip, and flare your arm out to the side, all of a sudden, as you start to come down, we have more of an abduction moment, which is out to the side. So as a result, the pec then gets loaded a hell of a lot more. So that's probably the easiest thing. But if you've got your big rocks in place, if you have leg drive set, you have a stable upper body of shoulder blade and rib cage position, uh, then you have all those joints stacked correctly, that is all you really have to do to manipulate whether or not it is a tricep anterior delt sort of dominant bench press or a pec dominant bench press. And where I think there's a, there's a general conception that if you go wider, you'll be stronger. And I think that the, the, the reason for that being uh, the range of motion is generally or definitely smaller, uh, the wider you get. Um, I would challenge people, though, to play around with how wide their hands are. Even just a slight change, one or two fingers around that ring on the bar, um, you might actually find yourself finding a position that is definitely stronger, particularly somebody with a longer stroke. Generally, a shorter stroke, so those really short range of motion people, just get them out real wide and take advantage of that. But if you're somebody with a longer stroke, I'm thinking somebody like a Brett Gibbs right now. Uh, if you've got somebody who has a bit of a longer stroke, Maybe taking advantage of some more musculature and getting into some tricep and delts as well, uh, that, might, that might be of benefit. So it's definitely something that you need to play around with for, 
for yourself in your training and maybe speak to your coach or whatever, but uh, you can manipulate it. And don't just assume that you need to go wider, 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 wider all the time. So you mentioned leg drive, and this is something we've spoken about in um, our Fixing the Bench Press podcast. Um, a lot of people mistake leg drive for actually thrusting through the hips like as we get the press command. How do you coach the leg drive and what are the actual movements that we want out of the legs during the bench press? Because that's not obviously, obviously we don't coach that thrust. We're coaching that stability, but how do you coach yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the leg drive comes, uh, for the most part, you can get your leg drive out of two main muscle groups. You've got quad drive and you've got glute drive. And they're generally the two that most people play around with. Uh, let's purely talk about flat-footed lifters here because it does make a difference if you can get your feet underneath you. So some of those other federations that allow your, your heels off the ground. Yeah. But let's just talk about purely your setup and how that would influence. So if you have a setup, and let's take, uh, let's take Will here. Will's a bit of a taller dude. How tall are you, Will? 5'10 and a half. Yeah, 5'11. 5'11? Uh, cool. When you... 5'10 when you, 179.5 centimetres. 5'10 <laughs> It's I'm just half. short of 6'3 by a few inches. Yeah, cool. So, yeah. So, if, if you were to set up on the bench press, yeah. in your optimal position, is your knee above or below your hip line? Uh, Probably close to in line. Yeah, close to in line. If I do everything perfectly, it's just below. Um, yeah. If I do everything perfectly, it's just below, but most of the time I'm probably in line because I'm a little tight through the hip. In line. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. So let's take that example as a whole. So let's take Will's knee being in line with his hip in the bench press. If Will was to push down with his knee in line with the hip, that would still mean we have about 10 to 15 degrees of hip extension available to him because the, the hip as a whole can extend about 10 to 15 degrees past, um, past neutral if you... Yeah. Posteriorly tilt or anteriorly tilt the pelvis, it's going to be slightly different. But for the most part, when the knee is in line with the hip, we have a small amount of area that the hip can actually lift up into. And that's going to be an issue if you go for the glute drive uh, approach or that thrusting position. Yeah. If your knee is above or in line with your hip in the setup position, there is available space for your hips to move up and, and move off the bench. So using a glute drive for Will might not be the correct way to go about it and definitely not that thrust. I don't like that thrust either. Yeah. Uh, I think it's too unstable. It's way too unstable. You're trying to get stability out of your legs to allow the pressing muscles to press. As a result, you should be trying to generate as much stable force as possible. No extra movement is needed. If you then take a smaller lifter, so somebody like a Chrissy Dask, who's obviously a very strong lifter herself with the bench press, I can guarantee that in her setup, her knee is far below her hip line. Way below. Yeah. Way below. So that means her hip has nowhere else to extend. It can't lift off the bench any further because it can't move through any more range of motion in that direction. So someone like a Chrissy Dask, you could probably incorporate some glute drive along with quads because the hips aren't going to raise any further or they really shouldn't raise any further. If they're raising off the bench in that position, you're doing something a little bit wacky. But um, if you can set, if you can just objectively look at your setup and if your knee is in line or above the bench when you're setting up, there is 
very little reason for you to be using your glutes to drive leg stability from. You need to use quads to spread into the ground and, and push yourself through the floor to stabilize rather than trying to get your glutes to thrust up because if you thrust up, your hips are just going to come off the bench 100%. So use your quads and that's how we promote most of our lifters. Yeah, quad drive. If, if you do push away from the floor, you'll actually find that your hips will end up closer to your shoulders. So your chest Definitely. will end up higher by using your legs, which seems yep. weird, but it makes sense. I think of it like accordion. You have an accordion and you press the bottom half yeah. of the accordion, the top yeah. half flares open and goes up. That's what's happening with your body. You're trying to make it an accordion. So your spine and your stomach and your chest raises on the other end. Yep. So, so you say accordion to Jamie. If you extend your knees, you can raise your chest. That's trash. That is trash. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to get one shit joke out on this week. I think that's actually about my third or fourth. Um, okay, so what are we talking about? We're talking about the prime movers, how we position ourselves to take advantage of them. Following that discussion, it's important to probably discuss which muscles are playing that positioning and stabilizing role as opposed to moving the bar. So maybe working top down, if that makes most sense for you, what muscles do we need to help position us to bench well? To position, yeah, so the, the supporting musculature, so away from the pec, delt, and tricep. Mm. Uh, you've got to look on the posterior side, so the back side of the body, and the two biggest players in this is your, uh, particularly your lower trap. Uh, so your trap muscle is the muscle from your neck that goes down sort of the midline of your body to about the base of your rib cage, uh, and then it fans out and holds onto the shoulder blade. So your trap particularly your lower trap. And that is because the lower trap fibers are most involved in posterior tilt of the shoulder blade. So we touched on this earlier. Posterior tilt of the shoulder blade is rolling your shoulders back. So we're pulling them back and opening the chest and flaring the collarbones open as far as we can. That is pretty much what posterior tilt is. And that is what the, the lower trap is one of the key players in that. And that allows us to keep the chest high. It allows us to keep the shoulder stable. It allows us to keep the shoulder blade stable. And as we talked about earlier with, in regards to the big rocks of bench press, that is a big tick. We are getting the chest higher and the shoulders and shoulder blades more stable. So the lower trap would be your first one. Secondary to that would be the serratus anterior, which is a muscle that sits in between the rib cage and the shoulder blade. And it helps those two muscles uh, sort of suction each other to each other. They, it suctions on. It can actually support the lower trap as well in creating that posterior tilt, so that opening up of the shoulder blades, uh, opening up of the chest, sorry, rolling the shoulder, the shoulder back. It can support that action. But as a whole, they would be the two biggest players in stabilizing the entire upper extremity to allow bench press to really be promoted as a big out, output exercise and, and lift big weights. And so both of those are kind of quite finicky muscles for most people to activate deliberately. When people are benching, do you actually cue something specific to get them doing their job? For sure, for sure. So they are definitely finicky, particularly if you have that original posture that we spoke about, that extended upper back, that that open, uh, so where the shoulder blades aren't sitting well on your rib cage. If you have that position, Generally, it means those two muscles, the low trap and the serratus, are going to have a very, very tough time getting uh, traction on the bones and actually creating some force and some stability. So we definitely cue lower trap in our bench press, for sure. Uh, we, 
we teach all of our athletes how to feel it, where to find it, how we can strengthen it with other movements. Uh, and then we try and get the lower trap as a majority of that feeling between the shoulder blades. The more lower trap you can get on that feeling when you're bench pressing, uh, as opposed to just purely retraction and sort of the middle of your back, if you can get the lower part of that area really, really tight and stable and a lot of neural drive, a lot of brain communication to it, generally that holds everything in a much better place. So we don't cue it as much as just pulling the shoulder blades together. We are really trying to get that lower trap to pull back and posteriorly tilt the shoulder blade. Sorry, Alex and I are both, are both sitting here looking at the sky trying to trying to squeeze our lower traps and it's, it's quite difficult, um, or at least it is for me. Well, I wasn't trying. Yeah, oh, Alex says he wasn't trying. It comes so easily to me. I just bend and straighten my elbows. Yeah. But no, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about what about the rotator cuff? I'm curious to hear what you're like. People often talk about rotator cuff strengthening and warming up the rotator cuff before bench pressing. How important do you consider their role to be? Alrighty, the rotator cuff. This is a bit of a. I think too many people focus on it, to be honest with you. Uh, I think uh, its role, when you look at the structure, and I talk a lot about structure dictating the function of certain muscle groups and actions of the body. When we talk about the rotator cuff, they are categorized as muscles that attach from the shoulder blade into the humeral head. So there's only four muscles on the body that do that, and they are the four muscles of the rotator cuff. They sit on the shoulder blade, and they attach directly around the head of that arm bone. So if you think about the structure of that, they are literally designed to suck and hold the ball centered on the socket. So we talked about that earlier in the episode as well, that if you can keep the ball on the socket, generally you're going to be in a good position to not hurt your shoulder. That is the main function of the rotator cuff. It is to keep the ball on the socket. When we talk about prime movers and stabilizers of the bench press itself i personally don't think that that has as much influence as your technique as a whole of the shoulder complex if you can stabilize the upper back the shoulder blades get the tension across the pecs rather than the front of the shoulder i think as a whole you're going to be a whole lot better than spending some time doing little rotator cuff, internal, external rotations with a band or whatever. You've got to try and address the more proximal issues that are causing that accessory movement to occur rather than trying to address the distal, the end part of it and try and strengthen the rotator cuff when you've got all this other stuff closer to the midline that's just going awry and not holding its position and stability. So I think if you're trying to chase that distal approach to the proximal error, you're gonna, you're gonna, you, you're not gonna catch your tail. You're just, you're literally just chasing your own tail. So the rotator cuff. I think you already said this. Um, those muscles sort of pull the actual head of the humerus into the joint. They create stability there, and they also yeah, think about it. Very minute movements. It's not, it's not big global movements. It's a very small, almost like um, it's a delicate movement and controlling of the ball. Yeah. So they also do little bits of rotation of the humerus. Um, so when we talk about internal and external rotation, if you hold your, hold your arms up like you're going to bench press and you bring your fist up relative to your head, that would be external rotation. If you bring your fist down relative to your waist, that's in internal rotation. You have three rotator cuff muscles that externally rotate and one that internally ro rotates. 
Yeah, you've got two main external rotators. One of them pretty much just abducts. So the one that sits atop uh, abducts to about 20 degrees. Um, the two main external rotators are teres minor and infraspinatus, and then subscapularis being the main internal rotator, along with some other stuff. But yeah. So how this ties to bench pressing specifically, or in my mind, um, you're talking about the importance of alignment and you know the elbow relative to the wrist, relative to the shoulder. And an error we see in bench pressing is the elbow falling out of line. So people dumping into internal rotation on the chest or even collapsing sometimes into heaps of external rotation because of a poor touch point. How much of that do you think comes from just like poor bench press technique as opposed to stability of the shoulder? And like, what's the interplay? Uh, so you just said then uh, poor bench press technique and instability of the shoulder. Mm. I think we need to classify instability of the shoulder because as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of joints that are occurring at the shoulder complex. Is it instability at the glenohumeral joint? Is it instability at the ball on the socket? I don't think it is. I think it's instability of the shoulder blade on the backside rather than the ball on the socket. If you position the ball to talk directly to the socket, we should have large ranges available of internal and external rotation, particularly when you're in that sort of neutral position. We, if you're limited in internal, if you have your arms out by your side and you're in, limited in internal rotation by, like if you don't have around 15 to 20 degrees of internal rotation there and at least 90 or 80 to 90 degrees of external rotation, that is, that is never going to be an issue of a glenohumeral limitation of internal or external rotation. It just isn't. What is probably occurring in that position, you've got somebody who is just poor at bench press and doesn't understand where to touch right now and they can't, they can't coordinate their, uh, their joints together. The motor control just isn't there to get consistent touch points. Or you've got an issue in stability on the backside. The shoulder blade is not sitting in a position that allows that bottom area to be expressed optimally. Uh, if you're, that is not, that is, I'm almost going to say, I can guarantee that is not a rotational demand at the glenohumeral joint as much as it is a stability issue on the backside. Uh, and, and very, very easy assessments uh, that can be uh, presented or, or, or looked at from a coach or even yourself is if you just lie face down on a bench, hold your arm out to the side like you would with a bench press. And if you have, we look for 90 degrees of external rotation and 60 degrees of internal rotation. But if you have maybe 80 degrees of external rotation and maybe 30 or 40 degrees of internal rotation, just actively just holding yourself there and moving in and out of in, internal external rotation, it's more than likely not a mobility issue of I don't have enough internal rotation that allows me to express that. It's probably more so I don't know what the fuck I'm doing when I bench press and I can't control all this stuff together. Uh, it's a motor control issue and I would just throw tempo work on that person till the cows come home. Tempo work, tempo work, tempo work. Slow it down, let them feel it, let them really control what's going on. Cool. Um, another... Another, so I said, I guess, opportunity for you to express maybe, maybe a different opinion to many is how important do you consider rowing and back work um, to be for the bench press? Because you've said the backside is important for stability, but the muscles you've identified are the ones that we use m more for things like reaching and upward rotation. So what's your stance on, yeah, rows and stuff? 
the, the back work as a whole is vitally important. We need a strong supporting act of lats, rhomboids, uh, trap muscles, uh, everything on the posterior side. So uh, rear delts, all of those muscles are extremely important. And if, if you're somebody who can't row your body weight or do a chin up, but you're expecting your body to be able to press one and a half times body weight, but you can't even do a chin up, you're looking at a strength discrepancy there that's that's pretty incredible. Like you need to fix that up. You need to get the backside stronger and more stable for sure. Uh, where do I think back work and rows and pulling sits on the plane of shoulder health? Uh, I think this is where my opinion differs from uh, the mainstream for sure. Uh, if you're looking to save your shoulders by doing more back work, I'm going to throw a stop to that straight away. Uh, rowing re and retraction uh, and pulling your shoulder blades back is the exact same position that is occurring with your bench press. Uh, that one-to-one -one pull to push ratio, I think is absolute baloney. I don't support it at all. I think it needs to be defined better uh, because it, it, it's, it, it doesn't take into consideration the full available movement of the shoulder blade at all. And where all those extra movements that we talked about earlier in the episode, uh, away from those down positions of the shoulder blade, they need to be strengthened. They need to be accessed. They need to be st stable in order to present an optimal upper extremity movement and capacity of the upper extremity. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I would uh, be against the mainstream idea. Uh, and I think it's starting to shift. People are starting to realize the importance of getting overhead safely uh, in positions that they can control and challenging the over overall stability of the upper extremity rather than just demanding more on the rowing and the back muscles. Uh, I think it's starting to shift a little bit and I'm definitely going to push it hard. And, as I will say, uh, and I'll put this out there, that content that I produce when I bash the one-to-one the one pull-to-push ratio is always the stuff that gets the most views. Uh, our YouTube channel, our blogs, even just Instagram posts, I get DMs afterwards. People are like, uh, uh, but my, my Cert 3-4 teacher told me this. And I'm like, yeah, well, your Cert 3-4 teachers, unfortunately, probably never dealt with anybody that's really extreme in their strength or performance of the upper extremity. So... Yeah, you need to get reaching. So don't get me wrong, rowing and, and big lat dominant exercises are very, very important. 100%, get them strong, get them big, get them stable. But also we need to get away from that and get overhead and move and reach overhead and, and allow that shoulder blade to move in the other directions available to it in relative to the to the ribcage. I knew as uh, soon as we'll, we'll ask that question that you were going to go on a rant. Yeah, that was, that was good. Yeah, I wanted to team up. He yeah, hadn't plugged this content enough. I thought he could get he could talk about his blogs, his YouTube channel, his Instagram <laughs> sponsored posts about why the two to one push pull ratio is bunk. I'm gonna sponsor a post directly in a ten kilometer radius around Lift Performance Center. I'm gonna I'm gonna sponsor a two to one pull to push ratio being trash and you guys will see it nonstop. It will just keep popping up on your feeds. Can you actually sponsor your post you just put up of Alex and I shirts off? Because like I'm kind of going spare at the moment. I could do with some attention, if you know what I'm saying. I can 100% do that for sure. If you guys send me an adequate photo that's worth sponsoring that passes all of the uh, Instagram privacy acts and all that sort of stuff, you're on. I got gotcha. you. I need to get a tan. <laughs> you need to get a bit of rig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. Skepis, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> all right, next question. <laughs> so uh, another common cause or another common problem that we see in the bench press is 
um, sort of like a, a bar that's tilted one side to the other. And often people who are feeling the bench maybe more on their right side than on their left side. Um, what are the common causes of this, this instability side to side? So the, the human body is obviously where we are locomotive beasts. We were developed to become bipedal, uh, which means we are standing on two feet because it's a more efficient way to move and it is a more efficient way to live uh, and find food and do all that sort of stuff in terms of evolution. So by nature of what the human body is, it's a unilateral body, meaning that when one leg is on the ground, the other arm is doing something else completely different. And we've got this unilateral swing to our movements in, in, in general day-to-day life. Uh, and that is a result of evolution. But unfortunately, that can tend to mean that one side of the body doesn't always act the exact same as the other side of the body. Uh, and just in the break here, we were talking about some of the Will's rib cage alignment issue, or not issues, but differences. Uh, and you'll find that most people have uh, a difference. When you look directly at their rib cage, you'll see completely different presentations from left to right side. Uh, just by organ placement inside the body as well, uh, we're asymmetrical all through our trunk. Uh, I've spoken heavily about the asymmetries of the diaphragm and how that might create a torsion in your body with the right side being a whole lot more efficient than the left side and stronger. Uh, But that difference in left to right sides of the body can present in a bench press or a squat bar that is not symmetrical. It might not be the end of the world. It might not be something that you need to fix. uh, But if you feel like it's limiting your performance and things for you to look out for, definitely. uh, Number one would just be a strength discrepancy between left and right sides. Uh, Do you have a stronger side left or right side? If you do, there's a good chance that you're pressing more force through the opposite side, uh, through the strong side, uh, and you're requiring different stability demands from left to right sides as well. How could you assess that? Uh, if you're competent with dumbbell pressing, you could literally just do a single arm dumbbell press or what you could do, what, how I would probably do it is find a, a chest press machine, just load it up to something that would allow you to get maybe eight to 15 reps and hit a max set on the right side and then hit a max, have two minutes off and then hit a max set on your left side on that same weight and see if you've got a big strength discrepancy. Generally with de- strength discrepancy, we're looking at about 10%. So if you get 10% more reps on one of your sides, that might be something that you need to address. Those pressing muscles are more than 10% lagging behind the opposite sides. That might be something that you need to address with accessory work, do more dumbbell work rather than, um, rather than barbell bilateral work, uh, do some single arm variations of drills. Landmine presses could be really good. Um, single arm dumbbell presses, all that sort of stuff. That would be the first thing I look at in terms of somebody who has a, an uneven bar on the bench press. The second place I'd probably go with what is going on with shoulder blade stability. So when you set yourself in that arch position and you're pulling your shoulder blades back and down, literally do it standing and see if you have symmetry of that position. Do you have the left and right sides doing the exact same thing? Maybe you have the left side that sits slightly higher or the right side that sits up, sits slightly higher that probably is where that is being expressed on the barbell down the chain it gets more exaggerated and then all of a sudden you're in this position where one side looks completely different to the other so that probably be the two most common causes i'd say to that either a strength discrepancy left and right pressing muscles are just not the same and they won't they won't be doing the same thing with a symmetrical barbell or you've got a stability issue that's proximal so shoulder blade rib cage somewhere around there 
Jamie, I assume you've done the um, level one powerlifting coaching course, right, with Wilksy? I've done that. Just, 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 just. Have you seen his um, drill that he uses for the for the opposite leg or something? No, yeah, the opposite leg up, driving. Where he loads up one side of the bar with more weight and gets you to like pull the heavier side onto one side. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember uh, that. Yeah, he was. I don't saying, think he did that at ours. He was talking about yeah, offset bench press weight. So if you prescribe eighty kilos to somebody, you'd put like I don't even know what is that sixty and ten on one side. So you'd like you'd put say forty kilos on one side of the bar and twenty on the other, so that say you know yes. your right arm was handling twice the load. That's that's what he does. And he, but he'd get you to like put the center of the bar like to one side of your body as well. Oh yeah, that too. Oh, so you move. So it's an asymmetrical like hand position on the oh, bar. Yeah. No, he definitely didn't do this. No, no, no. Didn't see uh, this one. No, he'd mentioned that to us. Um, I'm curious to extend on that though. Um, so one of the things you said off air was about the anterior oblique sling. Um, and then there's also a posterior oblique sling. I don't really know much about, but but the shoulder through torso and hip sort of work in like a crossway stabilization fashion. Is that correct? For sure. So that is for sure. The whole body, the body as a whole, when we talk about frontal plane movements through side to side movements or where we're looking at unilateral reciprocal movements, i.e. walking and running, the way that that works is you've got something on the right side communicating with something either lower or above it on the left side. So that are the sling movements and that's why because we're locomotion locomotive people but bipedal bipedal animals yeah so let's put that in um let's put that in plain english if you were to so everybody hypothetically imagine somebody doing a bench press with two plates loaded on one side and one plate loaded on the other so two plates on the right hand side right heavier weight going yep. into the right hand um what types of demands across the torso for stability does that does that sort of produce all right, I'm going to completely get rid of the barbell analogy. Let's just go a single loaded dumbbell. So you have a dumbbell in your right arm and you are expecting yourself to press with the right arm on a bench press. The left arm can do whatever it needs to do. It doesn't, it's not holding anything, on anything to stabilize. You will find that on that right-hand side, uh, with the dumbbell on the right-hand side, obviously the pressing muscles and the supporting muscles on the back side are all working overdrive to stabilize. But everything else is going to be happening on the left side. You're going to have a left ab wall contraction that is supporting that action. You're also going to have a left hip stability, and it's more than likely going to be the glute in this example. It's going to be doing a whole bunch of work to stabilize. And you can just play around with this yourself. It's actually really good. It's called the McGill. Uh, so if, if anyone's familiar with Stuart McGill, I think it's called the McGill Press, uh, where you literally... Yeah, leg spinner. Australian leg spinner. Yeah, yeah, Stuart cool. McGill. Yeah, yeah. Bought about 100 overs in a day once, didn't he? Take, yeah. That's Throws a mean flipper. 90 overs. Yeah. Now, Dr. Stuart McGill is sort of one of the world's leading sort of four front minds of backs and, and back stability, back pain, back degeneration, all that sort of stuff. Done a lot of research and has a lot of, uh, a lot of really good uh, information out there. So I'd highly recommend people go and look up Stuart McGill if you're that's, interested in backs. That's really cool that he's been able to do that and have a successful cricket career. Yeah, definitely. Particularly in a rotational sport, like a rotational extension sport. I would have thought Stuart McGill's back would be would be nuts, but he's uh, sorted himself. Rotations on that ball, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> revolutions. Apparently, Warney was saying the revolutions is what makes it float midair. I don't know. I can't remember. But Warney's a genius. Anyway, that kind of makes sense anyway. because I know a lot of the theory. I went through a phase. This is this is how it happened. We're getting way off topic now. 
So I used to love playing FIFA with my mate. And he actually ended up having a stint trying to be a professional soccer goalie. So he was really into it. And he'd nerd it up and tell me about it all the time. And I decided the coolest thing in soccer was people scoring from free kicks. And there was this dude who I admired. whose name was Juninho. And he used to score from like 40 or 50 yards. Juninho literally means little junior, by the way, in Portuguese, which is sick. It was this Brazilian guy. Junior, junior. Yeah, junior, junior. And so, so he would score from really long range doing these free kicks, right? And I sort of understood the way in which you would make a free kick curve in terms of the ball rotation. But he was famous for doing a knuckleball, which is where you kick it and you put no rotations on the ball. And because of the way in which the air moves through the seams of the ball, yeah, it move really unpredictably. And so it would go straight and then just dip and dive in a weird way. They do the same thing in baseball. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the actual movement of the ball through the air was, yeah, was determined actually by the seams in the ball. If you did a proper yeah. knuckleball, does that make sense? Because because the difference that definitely makes it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was sick. So if you go on YouTube and watch like a Juninho free kicks goals compilation, there'll be like fifteen minute videos where it's just him drilling them in from like nearly halfway, and these keepers will follow the ball and it'll be tracking across and the just goal, and then it'll across. just duck across, and it literally looks like he's got it on a string, but it's completely random, you know. And it's so funny. Fuck it up, it goes nowhere. Like it could go anywhere. Juninho. Juninho. My Gino, man, he ended up playing in like the UAE in one of those super rich leagues where everyone's just an oil yeah, tycoon yeah. that just hires like yeah. retired soccer players and most yeah, of they're like toys. And a marquee guy, yeah, yeah, exactly. He was that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. six stuff. definitely. That's fascinating. Ball, yeah. air, it's like aerodynamics. It's it'd be the, yeah, that's what it would be. Yeah. Oh, and how that tied into it. So during this obsession, South Africa hosted the World Cup, and they had a um, they had a soccer ball that they made like the World Cup edition ball called the Jabulani which means play in one of the African languages. I think yep. it was Afrikaans, probably. Um, but yeah, they had the Jabalani ball. And one of the things was it was made with fewer panels. And so pe- there was lots of conjecture at the time about what that would do to people trying to put rotation on the ball or to kick a knuckleball. And then there were these like YouTubers making knuckleball tutorial videos and comparing the performance of different balls when they were kicking them and shit. Yeah, really interesting stuff. I wasted a lot of time when, <laughs> when I was like 19. But I learned a lot about um, free kicks. That that that's heavily in, in as Alex said, baseball as well, like the different rotations and all that sort of stuff. Where you start the ball and and how the seams are spinning against uh, the air coming towards it or through it. Sorry, yeah. uh, completely changes how the ball acts in the air. That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so what we were talking about was anterior oblique slings, and you were saying that when you press on the right side, you have a left side abdominal wall contraction, left side and hip glute and hip. Um, to create yeah. stability. So what I wanted to then do once we'd sort of had, <laughs> had that analogy and then the tangent was bring it back again and apply that to a, a normal bench press. So when you see that lagging shoulder in the bench press, one of the things you sort of said to me off air was that probably there's issues in the right-hand abdominal wall for me. Um, how, like, how is that important and what, I guess, what implications does it have for shoulder function if you've got differences in abdominal wall function or rib flare at the bottom and things either side. So uh, again, I'm just want to preface this as human nature is, we are asymmetrical. We are not symmetrical beasts. It doesn't matter who you cut open and have a look at what's going on in the inside. We are not designed to be symmetrical beasts. And, and we are as powerlifters, we are expecting the body to absorb symmetrical forces. And 
unfortunately, when you put a symmetrical force on an asymmetrical object, it's probably not going to be absorbed the same way for every single person. So everyone's going to present slightly different. But in regards to what you've just said there with your opposite, so the, the contralateral side, the opposite side to where you're having your issue. So if you're having a right shoulder stability issue, I'm going to put a lot of money on it. It's going to be something presenting on the left-hand side to do with rib cage stability. Uh, and as we talked about earlier today, the rib cage is the foundation for the shoulder uh, as a whole, the whole upper extremity. So if the rib cage is not stable or not positioned in a, uh, a way that allows stability to be presented, uh, you're going to run into issues. So if you've got somebody with that unilateral inability to set a good scapular position or a symmetrical scapular position, uh, you need to look a little bit more downstream and see what's going on with is there a rotation in the trunk? Do we have somebody who has a whole lot more tones or a whole lot more neural drive or muscular activation on one ab wall compared to the other ab wall? So we're talking more obliques here. You might even have somebody who has a completely different hip structure, somebody who has a far bigger glute max on the right side compared to their left side and their left hamstring as a result is bigger than their right hamstring to, to take up that slack or their left adductor is bigger than their right adductor to take up that slack that the right glute max is doing all the work, but the left glute max just isn't. So there's going to be some sort of cross patterns through the body when you present with a unilateral issue on a, uh, uh, so a one-sided issue uh, more so than, uh, than it would be that there's something around specifically that joint. If that makes sense. I think I sort of muddled myself at the end there. No, it makes a lot of sense. So it's you basically have to trace down the chain and see what what possible causes can there be for this manifestation rather than just looking at the symptom. Perfectly, 100%. And if we go back to the very first sentence that we talked about with the upper extremity, after I muddled up the four joints and you saved my ass, uh, the, the proximal to distal approach has to be applied when we're talking about this stuff. And the same thing we talked about with the rotator cuff, you first have to address what is going on at the core of the, the body because that expressed outwards has more influence than it does the other way of what's going on from the outside coming in to manipulate the, the center. Everything at the center, it just has to be a very small difference. It just gets magnified and magnified and magnified and amplified the further away that we get. And then we get all these presentations where it's like, what is going on with why can I not have any shoulder flexion? Why can't I get my overhead on the left-hand side? of my body at all. And there could be something completely different at the center of the trunk that is causing that issue. Always look proximal, the center first and work your way out. Always, every single day. So now that we've, we kind of joked about Wilksy's solution to the, to the wonky bench press, which was the misloaded bar. Um, if you were to see somebody like that and say, say the first thing you thought was, um, yeah, anterior abdomen or oblique on the opposite side was weak. What types of things would you do to try and address that? And then how do you, do you have to integrate that into the bench press with certain cues or anything? Yeah. So uh, let's go back to the Wilksy thing. It's probably not a completely bad idea for what he's doing, but I think the, a dumbbell would work a whole lot better than a, a, than a barbell in that situation. If you've identified this being your issue, um, what would we could do on terms of strengthening the opposite oblique wall or the opposite ab wall uh the way we hammer side planks absolutely hammer side planks uh 
and we do give them out in unilateral um, uh, prescriptions. So we might have somebody who does a whole lot more left uh, ab wall stuff, so a whole lot more left-sided side plank work. You'll probably have a side that's, that's easier to maintain and hold that position. Uh, the way that we execute them is we go through full breathing cycles. If anyone's read or followed any of our content, you know how we breathe. Uh, we look for full expansion of both the rib cage and the abdominal area, the abdomen. Uh, we're looking for full expansion in that side plank is at itself as well. Uh, the side plank, most people understand it and it's pretty easy to, to do. You'd then challenge that further. So you go into like a feet elevated side plank where your feet are up on a bench uh, looking for that same same feeling and same position. Uh, I know we touched on Copenhagen's off air. It's something that we're bringing in a little bit more now uh, to do with some of those unilateral ideas. Uh, somebody like Jordan, Dr. Jordan Shallow, he's got some really good ways of challenging the trunk stability uh, and, and something I've picked up from him just recently in the last month and I've been playing around with it with my own training. I haven't, uh, I've only just started programming it because I've sort of worked it out myself how to correctly do it so now I can help my guys uh, is ipsilateral single leg loaded stuff. So where you're holding the weight on the same side that the leg is working. So if you think about like a Bulgarian split squat where the, the, the leg is up on a bench or something and the front leg is moving through like a split squat pattern, holding a heavy ass dumbbell on that same side as the front leg. And that's going to completely challenge every form of frontal plane, every side to side stability demand through the trunk, through the hip and all that sort of stuff. It's something that we've only just started to play around with after I got exposed by Dr. Jordan Shallow, the muscle doc. I'd highly recommend following him. Uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting take that can actually be quite challenging. And, and I've found some great benefit already in regards to my right glute med, which I've generally had difficulty with. Uh, this, this seems to be the best way I've found to challenge that and really light that guy up in some integrated patterns. Yeah. Um, okay. One other movement I wanted to ask you about just while we're on that was, what do you think of people using the 45 degree back extension to do almost like a pseudo side plank off. So you wedge your feet under the footrest, your waist against the pad, and then you sort of hold yourself out into like a side plank position, but your arms aren't, arms aren't on the floor. Can you envisage that? Not quite. I've never seen it. Okay. So you're, you're suspended between the two? No, you're not, well, you're not suspended between two things. You're, like, you're basically, do a 45 degree back extension in your mind. And then instead yep. of facing the floor when you're in your resting, I've got you. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. Uh, where you lock your legs in and you're sort of like got your like one of your hips pressed into the pad. Mm. Uh, yeah, that'd be all right. A really good way to challenge that further because you've got both arms available. Set that position. Grab it like a light plate, a ten kilo plate, and push it out in front and challenge that demand even more. You can do that. You can get perturbation. So if you hold that position out in front and get one of your coaches or your training partners to really challenge you and push you around a little bit, that could be really good as well. Um, that would be a really good progression because it allows you to do those other, other movements. Uh, I wouldn't start somebody in that. I would go to lower level. Um, we, I think we talked about low threshold learning environments last time. Uh, I would go to a lower threshold environment uh, think something on the ground to first learn and stabilize and have really good proprioception from that would be a really good pr progression for sure. Yeah. Cause it allows you to get to those other things for sure. I haven't, um, we don't use that a lot. Eric Cressy uses those a lot with his baseball guys. I know it doesn't matter for um, powerlifting, but uh, with his athletic guys and, and his strength conditioning programs, they use, they call it off bench oblique holds. Um, so they do those a lot. Um, yep. And then the last thing before we leave this asymmetry stuff behind 
is the posterior oblique um, sling. How how does I mean how does that differ from the anterior one, and is it related to what we see in the bench press? Uh, I've never gone the thought trail of the posterior oblique sling on the bench press. The posterior oblique sling for the main one is um, the, the lat on one side connects through the thoracolumbar fascia, so through the fascial system on the lower back and connects with the opposite glute, uh, glute max mainly. So you've got this big connective tissue and two big strong muscles. Uh, and they can really, when we talk about squat and deadlift performance, that is massive because that connects the upper extremity to the lower extremity through the lumbar spine. So that can be a really big thing to, to challenge for people uh, and can really be a make or break in terms of spinal stiffness. But in terms of the bench press, I've never really run the thought process of how it might influence uh, what's going on. I guess on one side you've got, or if you have a lagging lat or lack strength or lat stability on one side, we might be, we might have an, an, an inefficient, uh, stability demand through the spine itself, which might cause that left glute. So if you're talking about the right lat not having enough stability, that left glute might be working overtime to uh, take over that. So maybe if you've got somebody who's cramping or feels like their left glute or their right glute is working too much in a bench press, that might have something to do with the opposite lat for sure. I've never really run the thought process of what's going on with that though. That, that's a that's probably a 30, 40 minute chat if you really want to get into it. Oh no, I was I was honestly throwing that out there just in case you had an amazing insight. Um, not yeah, no, nah, that's the only thing I could really think. Maybe if you've got an an issue with uh, stabilizing that lat or a unilateral lat, uh, and you're getting as a result the opposite glute doing something. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, should we go? Should we go through these benjeras or? Yeah, we've, the, we've covered the, most of them actually. The ones we haven't spoken about are the last two. Yeah. All right, so we had written down some, some more bench errors and we wanted to ask you what the causes of, causes of them were, what are the consequences of that, and how do we fix it? So the two that we haven't covered were wrist position and uh, bar position in the hand. So what do you think, what do you think of that? <laughs> I think it's a, it is a vitally important, incredibly important um, thing that is your connection to the barbell your hand and your wrist uh, i think where most beginners go wrong or somebody that has never really had a coach is they either hold the bar far too deep in their fingers and the top of their palm uh, which makes your wrist so you can even just do it now if you press on that up around near the pad of your arm you're just going to bend your wrist that creates a moment arm which creates force there at that joint um, which can mean some wrist pain uh, so I think that's probably the, the most common issue that people just holding the bar too high, high up in their palm. Uh, I think where most people should be trying to get the bar is off the, the meaty part on the outside, away from the thumb, uh, which is above your ulna there. Yep. So above your ulna. And it, you almost have to like turn your hands. So if you know what jap grip is, if you know what jap grip is, where you turn your, th your thumbs all the way away from the bar and you're holding the, like your finger, your index finger on the barbell, if you can just find some sort of modified version of that, I think that's where most people should be holding a barbell in their hand themselves. We teach most of our guys to rotate their hand a little bit. Um, it just seems to hold everything a little bit more stable. Uh, if you've got somebody who is coming down and then the bar sort of flicks away from them and, and then their, their wrist extends or you're, as you're coming down, they sort of like bend their wrist, uh, you're probably looking at a rotational issue probably either at the um, radio ulna joint, so the, 
the, the elbow or something at the shoulder itself as well. Uh, but again, you'll have to go through an assessment process to sort of work out what might be causing that, uh, other than it just being a purely technical issue where somebody hasn't been taught correctly. But if you just turn your hand slightly away from the bar and hold it deep in your palm above that outside fat meaty part, I think you'll be fine with most people. So um, you spoke about holding the bar out in that fat meaty part. Something that we do occasionally see or that I occasionally see is people only really gripping with the thumb side of the bar. Um, so it's almost like there's no pinky side pressure in the hand. Um, why is that a problem other than just the alignment thing? Or is it a problem at all, I guess, is the first question. And where would that come from? Uh, I would say that it's not a problem if you can hold some grip on uh, the barbell. If you can actually squeeze the barbell in that position with what fingers are remaining, I don't think it would be an issue too much. But if you're in so much of a rotated position or you've got the bar in a position where you can't physically put some force into it and grab it down and, and cause some uh, irritation or some, some, uh, some like excitability in the hand and really crush on the barbell, I think you're going to be lacking in stability up the chain for sure. You want to have the bar somewhere in your hand where you can actually grip it and grab it and, and, and crush it with your hand. If it's just resting there, it's not going to be very stable. The forearm's not going to be very stable and, and then that instability is going to move up the chain and, and affect different things in different ways for different people. So yeah, you want to have the bar somewhere where you can grip it. Whether or not it's only three fingers on there but you can still get a really good crush on it, I think that'll be all right. But if you're sacrificing that in an attempt to get some, somewhere else, I think you might be, you might be uh, barking up the wrong tree. You mentioned um, wrist position creating wrist pain. What if there is no wrist pain? Is that still a problem? Um, I would say probably, I'd probably, I'd probably say maybe not. Depending on the experience on the lifter, if I had a very early stage lifter, it's not something that I would promote. I just wouldn't want them to be in that position. If you're a more experienced lifter who wears wrist wraps, who's had a few years under your belt of benching, I feel like that probably could be something that you'd get away with. Uh, if you still feel stable and supported there, maybe if you've got a heavy wrist strap on and, you're, and it's quite tight, you might be all right. The only thing is, as and in relation to the wrist, is if that barbell is, as you go to press and that wrist has some give in it, you're losing force. Yeah. Um, so if you've got everything steady and stable and, and sturdy there, and you're an experienced lifter who's developed it over time, I, I can't see why it would be that much of an issue. I personally would never put a newer lifter in that position though. No. Because I'm asking for myself because my left wrist is very flexed. Um, I get no pain and I don't even wear wrist wraps. His shoulder Do, does it move? In a different position. Does it move under load when you oh, go to press? It doesn't. It's uh, and it's only, like one, it, it's only one side as well. Which yeah. Is probably, that's probably more of a problem. Um. Again, as an experienced lifter who's got a few like consistent, like a few, I don't, I don't know your exact background, but I'm going to guess five or more ex consistent years of heavy lifting. I, I, don't, I don't see it being too much of an issue uh, if nothing else is really presented as a result of it. No elbow pain, no shoulder pain on that side, no, no lagging barbell on that side. I feel like you should be fine as an experienced lifter, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm very hesitant, and this is something that happens when we get experienced lifters signing up at our gym or online. I'm very hesitant to change somebody's technique uh, massively for somebody who has uh, a lot and a lot of years under their belt. It's almost just very small tweaks to what they're already dealing with. 
or already developed, I should say, uh, with their own training. Um, Sweet. Yeah, I was going to say that more or less wraps up all of the things I wanted to ask you. I've learned a lot, so yeah, the listeners yeah, also sure. have. Um, Jamie, if you were to sort of, I don't know, give us maybe the four or five key takeaways from this lesson, I guess, about the shoulder and bench, what would, we, what would you say? I think the biggest thing would be your technique is underpinned by your ability to keep your rib cage and your shoulder blades set and stable whilst you press. That should be the biggest thing. If you're struggling with that, uh, I wouldn't worry about using accessory movements that allow you to have more load uh, or challenge you in different ways. I would literally just be using accessories. For us here at Strength Culture, it is tempo work uh, that allows you to perfect your rib cage and shoulder blade position for the bench press. I think that's the biggest thing and that will warn off the most injuries that will allow you to press more volume down the line. That will ultimately get you stronger down the line is having good, a good foundation of rib cage and, and, and shoulder blade position. I think that would be the first and most important thing. Second thing is to incorporate some reaching patterns in your training um, to get your arms overhead without sacrificing your core position. Um, so we use landmine presses and push-up variations for our main two. Uh, if you want to see how we execute any of those things, just look on anywhere on our Instagram or our, um, our YouTube channel. We've got videos and everything explaining how we promote them and how we coach them. Uh, but I think that would be the second most important thing that in your accessory or your supplementary training, uh, have some reaching patterns involved in your, in your program, some, some full range push-ups, some landmine presses, some overhead work without sacrificing core position. Uh, that would probably be the second biggest thing. And it's probably been the biggest thing that I've, I feel like I've helped the lifting community with so far because our, our, our ideas are slightly off center from what most people are, uh, are promoting for sure here in Australia, definitely maybe not overseas. And, but it's something that we really want to push a little more. Uh, so that'd probably be the, the first and second what else have we discussed? Proximal to distal. Definitely look at proximal issues or get your coach or, or find somebody who can do a movement assessment and, and understand what's going on closer to the body, closer to the midline, closer to the spine and how that might be affecting more of your proximal issues, the shoulder as a whole, your elbow potentially or whatever. Uh, a lot of that comes with some form of movement screen, but uh, even just smaller things, instead of looking at the barbell, looking at your shoulder blades, if you're off center, why might this be happening? What's causing this uh, asymmetry to be presented? Because uh, very, very few times it's, it's the, the bars just being held wrong or something like that. It's something that's going on closer to the middle. I think that'd probably be the three biggest, the biggest things. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, just plug your seminars for us now. So you guys are coming to Sydney in a month or so? Yeah, March 24th, so about five or six weeks, we're coming to Sydney. Uh, we've sold about 40% of our tickets, which has been really good. Um, it's been a great response. Uh, as we've said from day one with these inter interstate ones to start with, if we can break even and make a little bit of money just to, to cover everything else, um, and that would be fantastic because this is the first time we're going interstate. Uh, so we have... Tickets for City Strength on March 24th, available on our website. And then we also have some tickets up in uh, Brisbane on May 18th, which is a Saturday. And we'll be running both our lower and upper extremity seminars. Uh, the lower one, we cover a lot of our core bracing strategies, core positions, asymmetries of the trunk, why that might present in certain ways. Uh, 
in the upper extremity one, we go into all the stuff that we discussed today. Why reaching so important? Those two in particular muscles being the lower trap and serratus anterior uh, and bench press and squat deadlift technique, obviously, but also a lot of the finer details of what we've been discussing for a few years now. Yeah. Awesome. They're all available on our website. So who would you recommend that seminar to? Definitely coaches is the, the guys that we're going after the most, the people who have influence on programming. Uh, we're looking for coaches to come down who want to, can't work out why certain things might be holding other lifters back or whatever. Uh, but if you're an interested lifter and if you if you're yourself are interested in how you move, why you move the way you do and all that sort of stuff, um, that's, that's probably more so the people, coaches and really interested uh, lifters, power lifters, uh, allied health pros as well, I think would get a lot out of it in regards to pure performance outcomes of squat bench and deadlift. Yeah. It's awesome. Awesome, um, man. Final plugging, all of your social media handles. So where can people find you if they want you for coaching, not just seminars, let us know and we'll wrap it up. Yep. Uh, so the, the website's the hub, www.melbournestrengthculture.com. Uh, for myself personally, jsmithculture, j.smith.culture on Instagram, uh, Melbourne Strength Culture on Instagram, Melbourne Strength Culture on YouTube is where most of our content goes through. We've got a blog as well, which has some cool stuff with a little bit more detail in it. Uh, but yeah, most of it, just go through the website. You'll be able to find our links. That's fine. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us, mate. So I'm Will, w.berkmanpt. I'm Alex, at alexhayes underscore lift. Um, yeah, thanks again. That was Weekly Ways for the Week. We'll chat to you next week. Peace out. Thank you very much.